0: Alright, hello everybody, welcome back to, I guess we're tentatively calling this the Colonia cast, uh, pending any further changes, uh, but I, I kind of like the ring to it at this point. Um, we're, uh, we're back, I'm uh, Michael Skibsted, uh, we've got, I, I gotta see my layout over here, up in the, uh, the center of the screen we've got your, the Ken uh, from Georgia uh, we've got, in the lower left, uh, Jack the Ripper, Jack Thompson. And in the lo- lower right, we've got the uh, Ohio Herper, um, Jason Wills, uh, and uh, Turtle Aficionado. And so today is going to be a fun one. I think everyone immediately sort of knows who, who the guest is. Uh, he's definitely no mystery in the Turtle world. Um, I think the first thing that a lot of times I think about, at least when I think about this person is the, um, the, uh, reptile or turtle personality of the year, uh, award. I think that that's the case every year. Um, I know whenever I'm on social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, I, I every time I'm on there pretty much, I see something, uh, whether it's from, from the, the man himself or from some robot Instagram, that's making a repost or something uh, there's just always content out there uh, from this person, and I feel like he's been on every major reptile podcast. Everybody knows who he is. Uh, he's got a huge personality and, and just an awesome guy. Uh, the, uh, so without further ado, we want to welcome um, Vice President and uh, uh, Senior Director of the Turtle Room, Anthony Pierlione. Anthony, thank you for coming on today and, and talking with us.
1: That was thank you so much. I just want you guys to know, uh, my wife and I on um, Turtly Devoted just did an episode on love languages, and my love language is words of of what is uh, words of encouragement, what kind words. I don't know. I don't know what it's how it's worded. Pun intended, uh, fittingly, but thank you for your kind words because I'm over here gushing and in complete love with you after that. So you're going to have to deal with that. Um, It's a, it's a pleasure. I I just, man, I just love turtles. It's the weirdest thing. I can't shake it. It just uh, consumes my life. And, you know, for you young guys, just kind of wondering what's next, just whatever it is, it's just, you know, some of us don't grow out of it and some of us don't, uh, you know, choose a life uh without them i guess so even if we could be on like opposite ends of the aisle or or have a different like some people are into field work some are into keeping some are into education uh some kind of dabble in all of it uh but i think we're all kind of somewhere on that spectrum and then other people kind of move away and come back um but for for a lot of us it doesn't go away ever it's there even if even if we're not like consumed by it and and have it be a huge part of our lives, it never goes away. So this
0: is your future. And and I think that's a great point in terms of it it never goes away. But uh, even now, it's not something that's really easy to find sort of a community of like-minded individuals. I feel like it never is. And uh, you really got to kind of reach out and uh, figure out who else is into this kind of stuff. Um, and that was really, honestly, the the uh, the genesis for this this podcast that we wanted to do is honestly just an excuse to meet with cool people um, and to talk turtles because we can't do it in in the majority of our lives. I was kind of thinking about this. This might be kind of an interesting uh, that everyone would have uh, some level of experience with, but like we're all all four of us are high school seniors at this point, so we kind of don't care much. Uh, but it, throughout in high school at least uh we've all had kind of different like i think been interpreted in different ways um and i think it's always been kind of positive a lot of people like after ttpg i had some people come up to me and they're like that was that was a cool presentation but you must be kind of the weird turtle kid and and uh and and everything like that but i i'm just always curious like what was everyone's experience sort of and, and, and what's your experience? I guess are you that the? And, and I don't think there's a wrong answer here, obviously. But the weird turtle kid, or just like that, everyone knows you for something else, and you, that's kind of just the thing nobody knows about you. There's so many different ways that you kind of express that. I, for me at least, it's kind of been I, I've I've uh, done sports and stuff, so I've been integrated in in other areas of of high school culture, and I'm definitely ready to be done with it. But uh, at the same rate, it's not like uh a lot of people actually they they know about the turtles but don't know kind of to the extent that i'm interested um i don't know what the experience for everyone else was like or is like i guess i mean i i could go first if you there's no order
2: just call them call them as you see them (laughs) so uh i mean throughout high school like I I am always known as like the turtle guy like I, everybody knows me for that like and uh but I also played football and I wrestled for 3 years and oh well, I wrestled for 1 year but I played football pretty much all of high school and uh yeah I was I was an offensive lineman cuz I'm a I'm a pretty big guy and uh I mean I was just it was like two different things I'm known for like I'm integrated with all the people and kind of in the general social structure of uh, high school but I also have uh this immense interest in turtles that they all know about. Cause I mean, a lot of my, a lot of people from my school follow my uh, Instagram, like they know what I do and they see what I post on my stories and all the things that I do. So they all call me the turtle man. People like stop me in the hallway and say things to me and uh, teachers will say things to me. They think it's really cool. Like it, it just, it's, it trickles down to everything.
3: Yeah. I, I am fortunate enough to say that awesome. this at least you know it sounds like all of us are at least you know being perceived positively by most people you know it's certainly also true that reptiles have a lot of stigma and some people uh, will look at you differently if you like snakes or turtles they think that you know they're kind of cold-blooded cold-hearted animals but yeah you know, we just know that's not true so yeah at my school i'm also known to be more of a snake guy and uh, yeah, that's cool with me it doesn't seem to affect me at all yeah what about you jason
4: Uh, Well, I'm in college right now pursuing um, an undergraduate like degree in like the sciences. So um, in high school, like I played sports and like I kept turtles, but uh, it wasn't really until like, I guess my junior, senior year when I started thinking about like what I was going to do afterwards. And I guess that's where I'm at. I'm a double majoring in biology and uh, anthropology and I keep turtles and I, I like looking for them outside, so. I guess a similar story to most, but, uh, yeah, nothing too crazy.
1: I love it. I, I, um, I can relate to that. And I think at your age collectively, um, I think for a lot of people, you get kind of caught up in other things. You get, you, you worry a lot and I'm not saying you guys, but I'm saying at your age, uh, you, you worry about what other people are thinking and, you know there there's there's some level of wanting to be cool whatever that means and i i, I like like many of you mentioned was where I, I was into sports and i, I played basketball and i, I ended up going to, to play basketball in college and and played a little bit in, in italy after that which was which was really cool and i always had the the turtles in my mind and and i always kept them i like had alligator snapping turtles in my dorm room that I wasn't supposed to have. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, the RA would say like, Hey, I heard you have some turtles. and like, yeah, let's just keep that between us. And would, you know, kind of, I'm a very nice guy, but you know, when it came to my turtles, like I would have done, I would have gotten kicked out of the dorm if I needed to by ignoring their, you know, requests and everything. And generally was a good person. So they left me alone and then maybe was kind of intimidating to them too. Cause I'm, I'm like, as Jack mentioned, I'm also a huge person. Um, so it's I when we were creating the turtle room and when I was figuring out what I wanted to be when I grew up and what I wanted to do with my life and really feeling a little bit depressed because I wasn't smart enough to go to school uh, and study the sciences as as you guys, um, many of you guys will do. And as as Jason is already doing. Um, I felt bad about it, you know, like I, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. I'm not, I, I, I don't have a degree in zoology, like, but I care about turtles and I want to make a difference. So like, what, what can I do? And that's how the turtle room was built.
0: That's a, it's a really good point. And I think, uh, organizations like the turtle room fill really a, an important, and integral sort of, sort of, uh, space in terms of kind of bridging the, the captive husbandry and, and private side uh, with, of, of, cap, of keeping animals, uh, with, with even the, the more like the zoo and in the institutional side. Uh, but also, I think there is kind of a third sphere there in terms of, and, and zoos are connected with this, but also bringing kind of researchers into the mix. And you have sort of this dialogue between all of these different parties that wouldn't necessarily be communicating with each other and I think you make progress in in uh, maybe three times as fast in terms of, uh, and maybe sometimes it, it hinders some things. But I think it's a it's a integral niche that is filled. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, if the turtle room, uh, I guess just as a personal anecdote, uh, I've been into turtles for a decade now, which is seems like a long time for me. Uh, but but a long time ago, I think it was maybe fourth grade, I, w- I was into it and I was, I was homesick. Uh, I started Googling uh, YouTube. It was like some of the first time I was on there and immediately found the Turtle Room content. And that was some of the first exposure I had. And I just thought this is the coolest stuff. Uh, and so in terms of educational out- outreach, I mean, that's another thing the Turtle Room just hits on. Uh, that, that no one else, I think, really comes close uh, a lot of the time. So just filling those two gaps is just incredible. I appreciate Ash. that a lot. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, in terms of... I didn't you know, realize that.
1: That's that's really cool.
0: Yeah, and I think I'm, I'm sure I speak the same for a lot of the other guys uh, on the show in, in terms of, like, uh, yeah. early exposure to that.
2: I saw those videos a long time ago. Those him to christians and all those other videos actually.
1: you're talking you're, you're you're talking about me then right yeah i made the videos back in the day which is they're so bad they're so bad but that's okay and i can remember thinking and i have the same thought with the podcast where like it's not about production value now when you look at the the turtle youtubers now even Chris Leone and Greg and and Kenan, who's been there all along, but uh, the the production value. I could remember seeing Kenan stuff and saying, and this is this isn't as a shot at him at all. But when I was making stuff and and he was making stuff and saying, okay, well, like I could never create stuff that has his production value so like then where's my niche that I fit into and that's kind of the fault with the nonprofit as well too I, people tell me all the time there's a lot of hobbyists who are like oh well I'm going to start my nonprofit profit because um, then I can get donations to take care of the rescues and I can get donations to feed you know the rare animals I have and everything else and like kind of challenging some folks like okay what are you doing that's different um, and, and why should somebody give money towards it? And I think it's still something that we're trying to answer and highlight appropriately with the Turtle Room. Um, I mean, for, in, in terms of co- communicating that to the public, I shouldn't say answered. Like, I, I think we have a really great mission statement and vision statement and, and all of that. But uh, with those videos, I think they were an important part of our growth. And it was like, you know what? like. And I said the same thing to Chris when he was getting started with YouTube. I was kind of pushing him to, to get back into it a couple of years ago. And now his stuff is starting to take off. But like, go out there. Don't worry about production value. Don't You don't have to make a 30-minute video every time you put something out. Like, even if it's just, and this is how I feel about podcasts as well. Even if it's just like, you get a chance to be a fly on the wall. Like, the five of us right now are driving to Hamburg or we're driving to go out outfield herping or we're driving to to ttpg or the tsa conference or something and we're having a conversation in the car what does that conversation look like and giving people an opportunity to be a fly on the wall like i think that's perfect and the production value for me something that i just don't really care about like the 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 value is in the conversation and the expertise and and um ideas that the group have that they're carrying around with them if that makes sense that was really long winded and ridiculous.
0: No, but I think that's a hundred percent true in terms of I, yeah. I mean, I didn't focus on, on on uh the quality really the videos. I'm I'm a turtle nerd and that's what I wanted to see. I think that the one of the first ones that just stands out in my mind is the uh the I think it was the uh male uh, depressa, the or I, I forgot if it's an Aricon or a Spinoza, Spinoza I think it's, that big one? Yeah. <clears throat> I remember
2: that. I remember that. Yeah. I saw that a while ago. Is that a Spinoza
0: or a Depressa? I can't, I think it's Spinoza, right? Male? Spinoza. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, the largest yeah. Spiny, Spiny Hill turtle on record for it's, I mean, it's Matt, it's like 12 inches or something, but, uh, that was one of the first ones yep. I think legit, I legit twelve full inches. Yeah, that, that it's a it's a tank of a, of an animal. Uh, that's one of the first things I remember seeing on there, and I I mean I, I don't I don't want to be blunt, but the production quality is definitely not a Canon video. But I I really didn't care. I mean it was one of the most interesting <laughs> videos I think on YouTube in terms of turtle content. So, and it's what like three minutes. I, I think that there's something to be said for the yeah. kind of short succinct videos in terms of. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no. It, I agree. I
1: completely agree. I've always felt that way.
0: Yeah, and that kind of content is, I, I think it reaches. I think we should, we should take a step back before we start to talk about uh, TTR stuff and, uh, and, and kind of just, I think, ask the generic question. we got to kick things off with just sort of, why turtles? I think that's a, it's an abused question, but at the same rate, everyone's got a slightly different story. Uh, so, just why turtles, Anthony, I guess.
1: Man, why not turtles? Right. I think, like, for me, it was a very, there's like some, some, some childhood, childhood trauma and, and, um, interesting experiences. I don't know if you could hear the rap music outside. My wife and kids just got home. So they're just rocking out to probably like the, I don't know. Troll soundtrack or something like that. Uh, so I, I started catching turtles. So I grew up like very poor and with some not so great role models and adults in my life. And my, my aunt, who was a wonderful um, person, like a second mother to me, would take me to catch painted turtles, eastern painted turtles, at, in like this man-made pond, beautiful pond that was like between like four condo complexes where she and my grandmother lived. And she was like my second mother because I was there all the time. She was younger in her early 20s, and she would just, like, babysit me. And um, we would go catch turtles. To me, I thought it was normal, like going fishing or, you know, thing something that people do. I didn't know how rare and ridiculous it was to go and catch turtles, but we would do it all the time, like a, like a fishing net duct taped to a wiffle ball bat. And we would go out and catch turtles and I would take them back and I would keep them, you know, in small, you know, 10 gallon aquariums with, with colorful gravel. I think at one point I even had one in a large salad bowl with gravel, absolute ridiculous. Um, what we did with, with that, but, uh, it was something that was really important to me and that like that being around that pond, hearing the birds, hearing the bugs, smelling, smelling the swampy areas and like seeing the little turtles poking their heads up like to see if you're still there looking at them all of that was something that like reminded me of like a safe place and a and and a happy place so i kept that with me throughout my entire um life and she she passed away in a car crash she got in a car crash with my mother uh, when i was nine and i don't know i just for me it was always like a Back to like that wonderful feeling of like, my aunt is here, we're out there. I I would go with my father once in a while too, who's like my best friend. And I would, you know, just kind of remember those good times, if that makes any sense. So all throughout middle school, high school, catching turtles, keeping turtles. uh, Like I said, I got a couple, I would read the books all the time when I was a kid, you know, like field guides and stuff like that. So I knew what alligator snappers were, but I really didn't understand the whole, how everything fit together. And certainly didn't have good role models in my life or anything like that, that would, that knew what the heck was going on. So I would catch a common snapping turtle and think it was an alligator snapping turtle, you know, in Connecticut, like, you know, um, because it looked different than the other one. I had no idea what I was really doing. Um, And then in college early on, um, I had a a girlfriend who wanted a pet turtle and I'm like, Oh, I know all about turtles. Let's do this. And um, I got her some turtles Um, from a pet store that she kept in her dorm. And I like, it was like, Oh man, this is awesome. I hadn't at that time. I hadn't had turtles for like two years and it was like, wow, this is so great. Two years at that age is a long time, right? Like that space. So um, I ended up when I'm going to this pet store, talking to the pet store owner and learning a lot from him. Um, He calls me now when he has a turtle question, but at that time I would just sit there and ask him a million different questions, anything that I could come up with about turtles and found myself talking to him a lot about alligator snapping turtles. And he would say like, Oh, I can definitely get you. Like I have some alligator snapping turtle. And then that's how I ended up with them, you know, in my dorm room and everything. And that's what really changed everything for me because then I started to research turtles online and things like that. And, um, was able to, uh, kind of connect with other people and learn that there's this whole big network out there that I never knew about. I'm sorry, my family's so loud and obnoxious. And uh, that was it was it was the combination of the those snapping turtles that I wanted to start researching and the explosion of the Internet and the possibilities that that offered. Uh, and then, you know, at that point it also, that's when I started to really feel bad about myself that I was already pop committed and had been going to school now for a year, two years and paying to be an art teacher is what I was going to school for. And I felt really bad about it. I ended up changing my major and getting out, um, earlier, but it was, you know, I was too far down the arts direction to switch to science at that point. But I and that's what led into the turtle room because as it continued to grow and I acquired more turtles and had more of an interest in just doing more and helping however I could, I knew that I had wonderful people skills was college educated I could write I could speak like there's got to be some way I could help out and that's what led into the turtle room. so that's me in i guess I guess that's an intro into me anyway
0: that's uh that's cool to hear he sort of I guess turtles are sort of a a positive escape, right? And that's something that I feel like I I, I can relate to that at a different level, more so on the, the, uh, I'm fortunate that my family is super supportive and everything, but, uh, like in terms of schoolwork and everything, it's certainly a retreat and just something positive I can go to, um, and uh it, i was wondering how you got the alligator snapping turtles that that are mentioned in uh i was reading your your bio on the TCR page and i i was curious about that uh but that's that that makes sense and uh i guess back in the day there were probably fewer regulations on i don't know what it's like up by you now but i imagine there's you'd have to maybe some state legislature on on keeping uh alligator snappers or
1: Connecticut's weird. Connecticut is like outlaw everything and force nothing. Not to say I'm doing things I shouldn't. At this point, all I have is one alligator snapper that I use. Uh, It's a a mid-size, I guess she's probably like 14 inches, um, female, and I use her for education, uh, which is is great because my wife and I do a lot of educational talks and obviously it definitely works well for the kids, but um, Connecticut has like a law about importing turtles, but it basically, you know, relates mostly to like bringing in large amounts for to be sold. And then we have like a red-eared slider band now that's newer that came to us in 2018. Um, and then beyond that, really most of the laws are just you can't sell under four inches and you can't collect anything from the wild. And then most of our species are protected. So that's how someone becomes a, becomes uh, someone who specializes in Asian turtles, for instance, because um, they just outlaw everything. It's not like Maryland or New Jersey where you can keep, you know, with permits. There's no, they say there's a permit process in Connecticut, but there's not really um, opportunity for people to get permits and stay on the right side of things. So, you know, I just don't get involved with any native stuff in Connecticut, but I'll drive to Pennsylvania, New Jersey to help out with in-situ work for our native species so it just depends on where you are
2: that's actually uh that's kind of relatable to me because i mean i live in delaware and like nobody ever hears anything about delaware it's like uh
3: <laughs>
2: it's like a completely out of the way like not a very relevant state but uh it's not it's not really that the, the like uh there is kind of a process to get uh permits here but it's not as easy as uh maryland or pennsylvania and this the state here is a lot smaller so it's like everybody kind of knows each other and uh like in the system too like i know the state vet i know all i I pretty much know everybody in the state and uh they all like like and support me and everything but it's also like i don't know it'll be difficult to try and keep some species or some things you just can't breed or have more than a certain amount of and but what I did to kind of get around to some of that
1: is... I think it's good just uh, to talk to people. Sorry, I'll be quiet. I have a delay, so you guys are hearing me. i, the afterwards I agree every messing right everything up. Like, go ahead.
2: No, you're, you're good. I I do. I just, that's actually exactly what I do. I uh, I have an exhibitor permit, which you can get in this state. It's essentially the easiest permit to get that allows you to keep a lot of foreign, like exotic animals, and it also lets you keep a lot of native animals too. There's there's some you can't keep, but uh that's how it pretty much covers all the animals I have as long as they're like listed on the permit and I have to add them to it. And, uh, I use them because the permit essentially like this gives you the, like you are legally allowed to use these in educational shows. And that, that's, that's what I do. Like, that's how I make money. Sometimes I'll, I've done them at nature centers. Like they'll hire me, like, uh, I'll do four or five shows at a a certain nature center over like two months. And, uh, I'll, I get paid like two hundred bucks for each one. Like it's really, and it's 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 perfect because I get paid to go up there and talk about turtles and animals for an hour and to just share it with people. Mm-hmm. So it's like getting paid to do exactly what I like to do. So that's, yeah, it took me it took me a couple of years to kind of get that put together. But now that I kind of have an idea of how to do it, like I know how to structure it based on my crowd. like if I'm t- if I'm talking to like a bunch of small kids, then, I know, not, I know how to handle that. It's different than if it's adults, but, yeah, that's pretty much what I do here.
0: Joe Biden was around for one of – or was going to be around for one of these, right?
2: Uh, Joe Biden? I think right. he actually was at this point because – no, he literally lives, like, two minutes from me because uh, he, he was going to be at one of the nature centers. At, well, this was a while ago. And I don't know about now, but I, I've, I've seen him around the town before, and – I mean, my mom used to know his son, his his son that died, not uh, the one that's alive. But he has a very deep roots and connection to this town. So everybody where I am knows this. is like Southern Delaware. But...
0: That'd be pretty fun to talk to the president about uh, conservation and turtles, uh, just to get that message out there. But uh, <laughs> well, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's cool. It's cool stuff that you do, Jack. Uh, that's certainly something like here uh, in Southern California, I barely know all the people on my street. It's kind of like, it's definitely a different kind of vibe here. <laughs> um, which I guess for better or worse, I, I, I just think it's generally worse, but, uh, trying to reach people, I think is there's challenges and, in, and, in, in different ways, but, uh, I just haven't really been able to kind of keep as many animals. So that's a cool aspect. But in terms of animal keeping, uh, I think there's no, no, uh, n- it's no shock that Anthony has more species than anyone else <laughs> here. Uh, how many currently? So far. Um, so I have exactly
1: 250 animals, which is, which is not that much when you compare to other people who, who do a lot of this. I know a normal person hears this and like, oh my gosh, this guy's such an animal order. Um, but, um, uh, I think in terms of different taxa, I it's probably around 42 different species and subspecies. Um, there's a couple color morphs mixed in as well, but I, I don't normally do that. But like, I, I happen to have uh, Vietnamese pond turtles that are um, a color morph as well. So like, I'm going to keep those around. They fit into the project. It looks like it might actually be a dominant gene as well, so they could just like live within the group. And they're pure uh, in a mentis, which is really cool. So you'll we'll see how that goes. I just wrote an article on that for um, uh, Radiata, the German uh, journal. I like writing. Oh, that's you know.
0: cool. I mean, I'm supposed to write something for them, but I, I don't know when I'm going to get to that ever. Because it's just like, <laughs> it's kind of tough to sit down. And, and uh, I've got like a list of other things that come in. It really but, is. Yeah. But uh, I, yeah, that's something really interesting in terms of like what you specialize in. I feel like you've had an ex- kind of experience working with so many different kind of genera and, and taxa even, uh, or, or even species, subspecies. I, I am curious though, I mean, not that we really like to pick favorites, but I, and for me, favorite turtles, not really to keep, I don't keep much, uh, but just in general it kind of fluctuates. But I'm curious, like right now, What's your like favorite species to work with and why? I'm I'm always curious of like what everyone's kind of what, what they're really looking forward to and
1: it changes like constantly. I I've grown into this person who just I the variety matters to me a lot. I think other people can really easily answer the question like if you had to pick one and everything else had to go and you were only allowed by law to like focus on one species or something, so then cross-contamination wasn't an issue or, or whatever, um, or as much of an issue. I don't know how I would answer that question. I think a lot of people know me for Spangler Eye because of the book that I wrote, the Vietnamese Black-Breasted Leaf Turtle. But uh, like this year I hatched Japonica for the first time. Now my partner you say, well, how'd you write a book on the genus then? Well, my partner, um, our partner Ben uh, has been producing them for many years, and I basically he helped me basically write that that piece of the book. But I produced them for the first time this year, which was a, a really big like I was screaming like my daughter didn't know what the heck was going on. But when I saw that first egg hatch, I was like I just lost it. There's nothing better to me than watching a turtle hatch out of an egg. Uh, so I think the Geoemida genus is up there. Uh, I have some fertile spider tortoise eggs that I'm scared as we speak that I'm killing, but they're like, you know, nine tenths of the way through incubation and I'm trying not to candle them every day. And I'm second guessing everything I've done, even though they're right there. That's one that I, will mean a lot to me because when, when I started with working with Steve and, and with the turtle room and trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up in terms of a turtle person, I really wanted to, to work on projects that had some sort of uh, at least preservation value. I won't say conservation because I think that word gets thrown around a lot with captive situations when it shouldn't be. Uh, And so my spider tortoises are from the Knoxville Zoo. They're in the AZA species survival program. uh, And I've raised them from hatchlings and now they're starting to produce. And like I said, this is the second year with fertile eggs and I have not hatched one yet. So like that right now is something that I'm like geeking out over. Um, and then also this year, I hatched uh, one of your favorites, Michael, the the um, the Northwestern pond turtle, uh, Actinemys marmorata marmorata, which um, is a really special one to me because those animals came from a friend of mine who, like on the turtle forums and stuff like that, we used to geek out a lot over them. And uh, he passed away, and on his deathbed, his his final request for his animals that meant so much to him to his wife or you need to get in touch with Anthony. And like, to me, that obviously means the world, like that somebody would trust me with something like that. And I didn't even get a chance to talk to him. He was very sick, told his wife that, and then he passed away and then um, the turtles came to me. So, and I I, uh, I produced them for the first time this year and just watching those little hatchlings grow up now is something that I'm, I'm really enjoying. So, like I said, multifaceted. I can't
0: answer that question with just one species that's uh the pond turtle story is incredible I didn't realize that that's uh really an honor um yeah that's that's awesome that you yeah. actually I mean that you've produced so much but also that your mentality is I'm going to go out and tackle these pro I'm, I, I don't want to deal with the, the the mass production and everything I'm going to tackle these harder projects for like you said preservation value and I am curious, uh, I sort of have my thoughts about this, but, like, what is your sort of distinction between preservation and conservation? I feel like that's something that's important for people to understand, that there is definitely a difference.
1: That's a wonderful question. I, I from, In my mind, preservation helps a species in many ways not as not usually as um effectively as conservation but true conservation is a rare thing it involves people from all sides of the aisle coming together and 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 working together and it's just something that happens rarely i think i think that's something that that can cause a little bit of uh, cynicism in biologists field biologists and things like that because they know how difficult it is to really conserve a species and like the true conservation in my mind for a species is like i'm gonna buy these 200 acres where these rare species live and i'm gonna make sure nobody does anything with it or develops it or or comes in and poaches on that land or whatever like that to me is true conservation Uh, but that C word gets thrown around a lot for, for private hobbyists and keepers who want to act like what they're doing is more than what it probably is. And, and I was guilty of that when I was starting out as well. And that's kind of where it started with, with like the spider tortoise groups, like, oh, this is awesome. But you have to actually consider, and and this is the distinction to answer your question in a long-winded way, because that's how I roll, is are those animals actually going back to the wild? If I produce those spider tortoises, are they going back to Madagascar? And is Madagascar ready? And will those spider tortoises stand a chance when they get there? And what are the risks that they're not going to bring disease in? Because now they've been hatched and raised in a place that has species from all over the world, including wild-caught animals. Like, be real with yourself, you know? Like, that's the first step for us to actually be successful, is to stop using um, our own... Desires, hopes, dreams, all of that as fuel for like coming into this with like an angle where we're, we're acting like something is, is, is actually something that's not. And, um, you know, people will say, like, well, is horrible. And I agree. I'm an animal keeper. Like, I don't want, I don't like want PETA to become the most powerful thing in the world. But their voice is important in, in that they're being fueled by something. And we need to understand what it is enough so that we have it and all other opinions in mind when we're trying to uh, move forward. We can't just, you know, turn a blind eye to it. Before we came on, we were talking about the Egyptian tortoise, which uh, has been proposed to be added to the endangered species list in America. Obviously this is a species from Egypt and Libya and it's it's not a – It's not something that needs to be protected here the way the alligator snapping turtle does, which is also proposed to be added to the endangered species list, right? I oppose the listing of the Egyptian tortoise because they're not being imported anymore. They're not being poached to be smuggled to the U.S. And there are international laws in place to keep them from being smuggled to the U.S. or sent to the U.S., right? It's not happening anyway. So the groups that want to list the tortoise have lots to gain as having that as a notch in their belt or a feather in their cap to say we got this really critically endangered about to be extinct tortoise on the american endangered species list that's awesome when really when you look at it that's a species that doesn't really need to be imported anymore because 503 hatchlings were produced over the last three years by, by private folks, and their thought in doing so in their argument would be well, the AZA is producing a lot of them, and that's not actually the case. The AZA has produced, like, you could count on one or two hands how many they produced in the last three years. So, does that mean that the private sector is the answer? No, because the private sector, 95% of the time, is all about money and and that sort of thing and i'll just say like i don't i don't think everyone has to be this way but for me i love turtles i don't do it for the money the only time i ever want money for a turtle i produce is because the person who has the turtle i want wants money and it becomes a three-way trade situation where i'm like yes here's the turtle send the money over to this person and i'm going to take their turtle i don't fund i have a job that i love um, that pays the bills, thankfully, and I don't need to breed animals for that. So, so that's why I worry so much about um, the preservation uh, um, opportunities around breeding a certain species as opposed to going for the popular species that uh, people want to buy at the moment.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I think most of us are sort of united by a, a commons we we, we want to ultimately see these animals doing well in their natural environments sort of in situ um and it's it's an important distinction to make yep. that uh ex situ work is is sort of the reserves it's not really doing anything on the front line the front line is more so like you said land acquisition it's and 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 you know as an ecologist and biologist i think that we have to realize that I mean, preserving turtles uh, is obviously very hel and, and beneficial, and we can make an argument for that. But uh, turtles are also just part of a, a much larger web of, of biodiversity, and by preserving them, we're kind of helping keep that system intact. But at the same rate, we, we really need to tackle the entire habitats. But uh, it's also we need these reserves, sort of in the in the uh, in, in the case that the current kind of state of things continues. At a trajectory and species like uh, i mean there's so many species that uh there's so little i mean the kawora the Asian box turtles is a perfect example where a lot of those they're they're probably more in captivity than in the wild at this point, and the 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 land area that they occur in is is probably smaller than a lot of residential neighborhoods and and uh it 's just one little kind of ecological shift there uh you could lose the entire wild population and so kind of then you've got to deal with readjusting to that but just to have these reserves is is preserving the species, but it's not like you said it's not conserving it. I think the distinction is conservation is applied uh, in, in 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 situ whereas preservation is sort of uh, keeping things in, in existence in in a in the human sphere, I think and, and having them mobilized in case of emergency and and people don't realize too though, Like, these things are a lot more complex than just breeding turtles and then, oh, we've lost a a chunk of habitat, we can just go release them. I mean, actual conservation uh, takes, like you said, it takes really – I I think it takes an army, honestly, to move sort of the mountains that that occur there. And and with a lot of that legislation, it's more of a political agenda – um, the diamondback terrapins is a great example of that too. I like the Egyptian tortoise. I mean, the diamondback terrapins is a state Florida legislature, uh, trying to ban any sort of pe- people from owning them, but that's kind of, it's, uh, it's counterproductive, I think, cause that just kind of forces more people to go and poach. Uh, so you sort of are working against a, 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 political agenda, I think a lot of the time, and, and there's no reason that private and, uh, and, uh, I guess, uh, more uh, like zoos, aquarium, AZA uh, individuals can't really collaborate because I think we are kind of fighting the same battle ultimately and just maybe uh, separated kind of by institutional boundaries. Um, but, yeah, that those are some interesting points, and it's interesting to hear someone kind of talk about. You know, I, I think uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't necessarily realize when they're getting into this is the fact that legislation is not perfect and that a lot of times – it's it's motivated by other things. If someone can get this check on a on a box to to get uh, something kind of in their name uh, or, or some some sort of influence, and then they get kind of a payoff for it. But um, I am curious, kind of I guess, changing the subject a bit. But you mentioned it, the uh, proposed listing of the alligator snappers on the ESA. Um, I'm curious what you think about that, and and kind of what everyone thinks about that. I'm sort of uh, I feel like there's sort of poaching pressure in, in general and, and enlisting them maybe could bring a lot more federal funding to the species, but also I am sort of hesitant to accept any of these kind of things just because of the stuff that's written in between the lines. Yeah. Uh, okay. I was
1: muted. No, I'm not. My, I apologize for my kids screaming in the, in the background. I'm trying to oh, mute it's all myself good. when I'm not it, talking. Well, uh, yeah, The, we're... the So sorry. I'm making it awkward because of the delay.
0: Okay. No, you it's fine. The, We've got There's guys. three
1: species three groups <laughs> being listed because of um with this new with the new legislation, right? So you have uh, the alligator snapping turtle, which I mentioned, the Egyptian tortoise, and now we're talking about map turtle species as well. And each one of them can give you a different uh, uh, example of of kind of what can go right or partially right or like really wrong with this sort of legislation that's being proposed. So if you take the three of them, I mostly, uh, the one that, that makes the most sense to me and that I am on board with is the alligator snapping turtle listening. I am sorry for those people who for years have been producing alligator snapping turtles and, and shipping them overseas and making a living that way. That really stinks. Uh, but you know, personally, I, I chose not to make a living by selling turtles because I knew that this could be the future. And, uh, I, like I said, I, I breed animals for for fun. Uh, I think you look on both sides, pros and cons. The the effect that this could have uh, for wild populations and, and giving uh, law enforcement more tax so that they could actually drop the hammer on somebody a little bit more easily when they're caught doing something wrong, I say list the alligator snapping turtle. We, you know, bred different mixes, uh, different pairings of alligator snapping turtles together before we uh, knew what, uh, was happening genetically with them and the fact that there were actually multiple species out there. So, you know, we kind of screwed the pooch in that way anyway. Um, as, as far as from a preservation standpoint, uh, and I think that it's appropriate. I I hate seeing anything get listed from a keeper standpoint, but like that one makes sense. I'm not going to argue it because I'm not a hypocrite. And I'm not uh, going to be one of those people that, that looks at something through their own lens and not from the lens that uh, makes the most sense for everybody, right? I'm going to be the person who wants to play nice for every, with everybody on, on all sides of the aisle. You know how I feel about the Egyptian tortoise? I don't think exotic species should be listed. Non, Non-Native, uh, um, you know, non-US species should be listed on the US endangered species list. That's what CITES is for. Of international legislation and then the last one the map turtles the issue there is that they want to list four different map turtle species because they look alike so they're basically admitting the inadequacies of their law enforcement uh and that we're just going to list all four because we want to list this one and uh that'll be kind of how the law works uh, that I have a problem with. I don't think that uh, ignorance on the part of the people making the laws should be uh, a reason for listing multiple species when you have one or two that you're actually looking at listing, if that makes sense. So that's my thoughts on those three.
3: Yeah, Anthony, that, that, that really makes sense. Um, I'm actually, I'm really surprised to hear about the Egyptian tortoises. That, that just sounds completely absurd to me. Uh, I have just one more uh, more specific question. Uh, first of all, just for listeners, I'm currently... There are, there are two recognized, recognized official species, species of alligator snapping turtles. Um, personally, I believe in three. So I'm just gonna ask Anthony, um, if you said you would uh, favor the listing of alligator snapping turtles as endangered. So I wanna ask if you, is that all three lineages or just two of them, you know? Personally, I feel like Suwaniensis is probably uh, more vulnerable than the other. Uh, what, what do you think about that? I don't
2: about? mean to interject, but uh, I do think that uh, I do really strongly support the listing of the alligator snapping turtles because if we need to give more le- the government needs, all right, not, I don't normally agree with this from all points, but I think they need more power to protect them because even in protected areas, alligator snapping turtles are still exported a lot. They're highly valued in China, especially huge males. And, uh, now that it's becoming more common knowledge that there's, there's, there's distinct lineages and, uh, even they each lineage has different traits than the others, and the, the, like what, like what you said with the Swaniensis, it has a very limited range. It's only in one drainage, and it's probably the most physically distinct one compared to your typical westerns. They tend to be the most consistently golden colored, and uh, there's a lot of other differences too. But those that's like that drives the trade, and I've seen Swaniensis appear in in Asian markets where they, there's no way you can get them legally, but and there's and then of course uh the westerns and some of the ones in georgia that i mean the apalachicolas aren't considered right now to be a distinct uh lineage but i'm in support that they are and uh they they they, they just need to be there needs to be more attention on them being like poached or even where it's legal to export them because they're they're pretty fragile when it comes to like comparing them to like sliders they can't handle the same kind of exploitation because they have like a low population density and they're uh there's only it takes a long time for one of them to become a mature adult and you remove a single adult male from a river system that's going to that will have a cascade effect on it and uh well yeah i i'm, I'm pretty in support of alligator snapping journal
0: i think a point that too needs to be made is in yeah. terms of uh this the species delimitation of maca kelly's is far from uh is far from uh, perfect, I think. Uh, And and future work, uh, the original, the the Thomas paper in 2014 that originally split the three species, uh, I think genetically was pretty limited. They used two and a half uh, mitochondrial markers, um, which in terms of, they don't, they're essentially just sort of one uh, inherited. They don't recombine. Uh, and they're kind of just one aspect of an organism's evolution. I think we're missing a lot of information uh, without any nuclear markers uh, genetically. And morphologically, obviously, there's a certain level of uh, when you get more characters that are distinct, you can make an inference that that is kind of paralleled in terms of evolutionary history, but it's definitely not always the case. Uh, Homoplasy, convergent evolution are uh, certainly issues that are are sort of being resolved, but at the same rate, um, we see that kind of thing occurring in, in genetics as well. So really, I think there needs to be, and, and the money is the thing behind this, and I think in 10 years or five years, it won't be the case, but it's just too expensive to really get a large data set of multiple different types of markers to get a kind of holistic analysis. And, and I think that the point of captive keepers have sort of messed things up. It could, to some extent, even now be the case, because I think that there will be more kind of cryptic diversity revealed through larger data analyses uh, that are forthcoming. Uh, At what level specifically? I mean, when do you draw the line between species and just sort of population substructuring? Uh, That's kind of hard, and... There's not really a consensus for that, but to some extent, I think we'll always be sort of messing up genetics unless everything is strictly defined within a population. But I think at present with the current species, that's kind of what we're dealing with. So the question is sort of just with the currently defined species, should, it, should there be a difference? Uh, and I guess I, personally, I think that all of them have suffered enough to the point where it's sort of all of them kind of warrant that status, but I don't know how you feel Anthony or Jason or
2: I think one more, this is, I'm just going to say this quick is we should at least try to get some captive stocks of each different lineage before we can no longer do that because uh, that was not done with Galapagos tortoises, which is one of my favorite animals of all time. But, and it's, it just pains me to see that like the, the whole scope of, like, morphological, like variation morphological variation is not represented not at, all at all in captivity that with galapagos tortoises they're almost they're all, all of the all exact same, same type. type there's there's over a dozen different uh i guess you could say i mean some consider them species but varieties that are morphologically distinct in some sense and even genetically distinct and even there's a lot of ongoing research with that but that was when they could have been imported it wasn't really taken advantage of and by the time it just got to the point where they couldn't take any more because their population was so low. But I just wish that at least some of the ones they had in like the twenties and thirties were at least bred more because now there's no saddlebacks in captivity anywhere or there's barely any, essentially none. And uh, we only really have the Santa Cruz giant tortoises and a couple like scattered individuals of other forms, but most of the forms are not represented at all. So I wouldn't, I, would, I don't want to see that happen to the alligator snapping turtle. Like, cause it, it, it kind of ties back into that whole uh, preservation aspect. It's like, it's, 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 simpler than, it's like a simpler form of conservation. It's like, worst comes to worst, we still have all these captive animals. Say something happens to the wild ones. We have them, the species is not lost. And, uh, but if you're looking at the Galapagos tortoises now, they're pretty much all in the islands. Like all of, that's where all of the, Captive stocks are. They're in the breeding centers on the exact same island. There's not really any left anywhere else in the world. And uh, with alligator snapping turtles, I'd like to at least see groups or captive, like keeping and breeding of like the swanee forms and the Apalachicolas and ones that we with known origin and just a better look at that. Like that's kind of before they're protected.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I have a, a thought it's gonna be a delay now, so hopefully you got it. okay. here we go. Uh, Ken, the answer to your question from from my perspective is I you list the genus and uh, hopefully we don't end up with two genera you know, of alligator snapping turtles, I would think that the the splits would be on the specific and subspecific level. And let's just go with that, right? Like, just list them. They all, um, I think, as as, uh, Jack and Michael both both pointed out, like, they all are deserving at this point. We had our chance. Uh, In terms of, of Jack, your your, uh, point about the Galapagos tortoise, I I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, It's, I think we haven't even scratched the surface in terms of figuring out the damage that has done in terms of muddying gene pools for several different uh, turtles. And I'll use my, I'll use an example that I know well, because, you know, we all have our, our focuses. The, the Vietnamese black breasted leaf turtle, G.O.A. Midas bengalari is something I remember speaking to Rick Hefner, who used to be the, Uh, studbook coordinator and and species survival plan uh, keeper for the AZA. Uh, He was at the Denver Zoo at the time, and I spoke to him a lot about this. Like, why is the studbook, why is the SSP not keeping track of uh, different localities if we know them? Like, for instance, Hainan, Island spangler eye is very easy to distinguish from others, even though people have imported them and sold them as normal spangler eye because they're dummies uh, from my perspective. Uh, and by imported, I mean smuggled and poached, poached and smuggled. So uh, some of those have come in over the past few years and people have like sent me pictures like, Hey, someone wants to send me these, sell me these spangler eye. Like, what do you think? Like buy them or I will. Uh, and now um Daniel Gaillard is doing some uh, and others are leading uh, efforts to do genetic testing on captive Spangleri, And we're actually starting to get some of the results back to see and to see which ones are related to each other. Uh, uh, The wild caught founders that, you know, the the, um, holdovers from the large scale importation days before the uh, turn of the century, early, very, very early 2000s and the late nineties, that sort of thing when they were coming in in really huge numbers. And we're starting to see like, hey, my friend here in Connecticut who also breeds like we have some animals that match up. We're gonna be working together to pair those animals up and to create actual known locality Uh, groupings based on the mitochondrial DNA which is just a thrill like I can't even tell you it's so wonderful Uh, that's probably warranted across so many different species and then you start to think okay what about the species that are totally extirpated from from whatever area like you talk about reintroduction like do the real true genetics even matter anymore if you're going to like you know, bring a tortoise back to an island where they've been completely removed and there's none left. Like, while well, this tort, this island had a saddleback tortoise, or this island had, you know, a, a, an Aldabra-like tortoise. Like, let's you know bring those back there. And that's where you get into kind of the um, some of the weeds, some of the confusion and and morality questions around like reintroduction that makes turning preservation into conservation, um, something that, something might, that might, might never, happen, if not extremely rarely happen. So I'm more of a realist. I, I've like, like at baseline I have been, and, and have I've always been an optimist. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, which is the same personality that Steve Irwin was. I want to tell people about these animals I love and why they should love them and why they're so cool. And uh, I was just realizing this actually last night while I was watching Steve Irwin reruns. But uh, animals and turtles have taught me to just be a realist, and and I, I get a little bit, a little bit pessimistic and, and cynical about the world because it's a really rough situation and it's an uphill climb. So that's why I, when Michael, as you were introducing me, you're talking about how you kind of see me everywhere. I made a decision a few years ago, like, I'm just going to put stuff out there to start the conversation. And if I can connect with some people uh, like we're doing right now, then that's the best possible thing that we could be doing for these animals. It's just connecting and sharing, you know, the, the good, uh, the good that they could bring and, and, and how important they are and the fact that people shouldn't overlook them.
0: I think that hits on an interesting point in terms of preservation work too. Um, when you've got like the ethic ethics behind this, uh, I think to a certain extent, because there's certainly a difference in terms of kind of holistic um, with the amount of divergence genetically that makes a species um, is tends to be pretty extensive and kind of varies. Uh, but w- when you're looking at it, there's certainly more genetic diversity than just a species split. Um, and so I think that if there is the luxury of being able to preserve kind of smaller scale population level differences in terms of genetic, this is also kind of mirrored in, in phenotype or what an organism looks like generally – Um, I think that that's something that should totally be considered. And I think with like stud books and such, you see that kind of thing, kind of uh, preserving specific haplotypes and and keeping things kind of locality based. Um, But for other species, I think ethically you can uh, justify uh, kind of taking whatever's available. And a lot of times it is just kind of one closely related group, which is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, and you kind of want to play around with this sometimes to try to increase sort of that that, that diversity in the gene pool. But uh, to a certain extent, sometimes you kind of have to work with breeding a variety of different things that maybe goes against sort of morphotypes or population substructuring, I guess. Um, but in terms of the Geomida uh i i how many so is it just sort of the mainland variety and then the Hainan variety or is there are there a few more mainland varieties i can't i seem to recall in the book you mentioned three but i could be i could be mistaken
1: yeah there's more um and and that's the great thing about the work that daniel's doing is that it's pretty extensive and some of them to to, to your point point, point some of them are not as easily distinguishable using the phenotype as they don't look a lot different than one another so the Hainan ones are easy the north Guangdong ones are really easy because they're massive like up to 350 grams which is like me compared to a normal person i'm 350 pounds so uh there's um definitely uh some some variation with some of those uh, localities, but there are there are others that um, where it's not, and uh, it's it's very it's it's been very interesting and, and exciting to be able to actually do this because you know why wouldn't you breed a thangler they're they're rare they're awesome there needs to be more of them in the world they're continuing to decline but there's people are starting to have some some success which is great but again how useful is that from a conservation standpoint? I mean, I guess it, hopefully it, it it reduces the risk for them to need to be smuggled. Poached and smuggled is the best part uh, from a conservation standpoint. Like, it, well, we don't need to send them to the U.S. anymore because it's not worth getting caught. Those other couple people got arrested and they're producing a lot more now. And now, you know, the price dropped. But, for, you know, at this point, the price is going higher because everybody wants it. Yeah, I think
3: it's sorry, I'll, Mike. I'll let you speak Mike, later. But, um, it's, it's easy, and, easy, and, I've, and I've, been I've been guilty of this thinking in the past too. Past it's easy to easy think, to think that, you know, that you know turtles are wild; they should stay in the wild. You know, wild, know, conservation over preservation. preservation. But, but it is also it is useful also to think, think that, that, that this is a, very, is a very, it could be a very fine line between, fine line between preservation and conservation. And preservation, you know, you can learn more about you know their incubation requirements, and you know that could help you restore any species back into the wild and Uh, uh, Sorry to bring something that's outside of turtles, but, you know, right now the Amphibian Foundation, they just figured out how to breed um, flatwood salamanders and, you know, that's, you know, these revelations, like how to breed them properly, what type of conditions do they thrive in, that could really, really help um, conservation in a way. So that's, that's an important thing to discuss. And Michael, what are you going to say?
0: Well, I mean, that was a much better point than ever I was going to bring up. That that's actually a really good distinction I think in terms of like we learn so much through that that's that I mean that that definitely hits home because y- y- you learn so much through the captive and XC2 situations that can be applied in C2 that uh honestly i think it's very it 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 progresses the field more rapidly when you have private keepers working with scientists and you know as someone that's more i would say i I don't know i i kind of I, i just like turtles i don't really care what you classify yourself as uh in terms of like what specifically what part of turtles i just like them in general um but there do there is kind of And not to say that there isn't kind of a stereotype For captive keepers and everything But in the science field there's kind of uh, A lot of times scientists sort of look down On people that that aren't uh, scientific or or whatnot And I think that's just so silly Because a lot of times uh, scientists and and people like that Actually miss out on fundamentals of science is observation and caring about the the organism And that's what matters It's not really the ego Um, I think that gets in the way a lot, but yeah, regardless that, that's interesting. I I was just going to ask, um, has Daniel, Daniel's an awesome guy. I, uh, he was at the TSA meeting and, and gave multiple talks and, and, uh, we've communicated a bit, but has he actually sequenced some of your animals to compare? I mean, that, that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he has. And it's, it's been incredible to, to see where they kind of stack up and, and how everything works. It's just, it's just mitochondrial. So I think there's going to be some that get kind of caught up in that, like, well, we still don't truly know where they fit in. If we like, if we don't know whether or not something's wild caught, luckily with right, you can tell like 95% of the time. Um, but sometimes they like wild caught ones look a little weird and have some characteristics like uh, marginal scute flaring towards the back end uh, that that really uh, happens usually in captivity. But sometimes you see it with wild ones so if you don't know um, their history. That could be a little bit confusing. But I, I wanted to touch on one other point that you just that you that you said, Michael. The scientists and, and biologists researchers who don't really value the um, what's coming from the private sector. And it happens a lot with the institutions as well, the AZA, they're really they're really locking down now and, and uh, going to be extremely, uh, um, significantly limiting the participation of private sector folks in stud books and species survival programs. Uh, you need a letter from the top person at a zoo and you need someone from the zoo to come and visit your um, facility to give the go-ahead. It sounds good until you realize that like nobody wants to come and visit. Uh, nobody wants to write the letter. So I'm struggling with that a little bit right now myself. It's a real, a real frustrating thing. But I think the the, the my literary hero was Dave Lee. And Dave worked, uh, he was a biologist, field biologist, but also somebody who bred uh, animals as well. Sorry, my dogs are barking. I'm to talk through it. But uh, he was incredible. He also started like the Asian Turtle Consortium and had a bunch of information out there. He did amazing writing and was just incredible. And he's someone who was not scared to, to push, to push private folks to being better. And there's so much of, of, I get so much pushback and I don't care. I'm going to keep pushing the scientists, the biologists that you mentioned that aren't really listening to that side and are not interested in that side. It's for a reason. It's because we, and I say we, it's not me. It's not you guys. It's, it's not anyone in particular. I don't mean to generalize, but statistically the majority of us really make ourselves look bad all the time we're making it very clear that we're in it for the money if you look like if the if the classified ads are the most and i think they are and youtube and things like that are the most visual account of who we are and then you're somebody from the outside who's making laws or deciding whether or not I want to take a chance to to partner with this private person or whatever chances are you've seen all that stuff and you've probably been burned multiple times in the past and you know people change their ideas about about what they're going to do more than I change my underwear like, okay, I'm going to do spider tortoises. spider tortoises. This is it, man. I'm in it for the long haul. And then three months later, they're selling the spider tortoises that they've told you how much they they were excited about because they're like not exciting enough. Like that's, that's not the type of, you know, champion that we need in the corner of these animals. And so many times it's proven that that's not who the private person is and i don't mean that like towards any person in in particular i just it's just my challenge as dave lee would have done to us years ago and and how i felt reading his stuff like it challenged me to be a better keeper and a better champion and like steward for these animals if that makes
0: sense yeah i i mean and the other definitely i mean just, just Oh, I, I go ahead. we're working just on gonna a little cut bit in real delay, quick so. and uh
4: to kind of uh um to go off of what you know, anthony of what was saying like, was saying um, like I've, I've kept turtles kept since like since really since i was, since little, since I got, was like, little but i got like my uh Terrapins, my terrapins back terrapins when i was in middle school and, middle school, and middle throughout the years that i've kept turtles i found like the most enjoyment and like uh the most most when you really feel like you know you're getting something out of it is when you're animals are doing well so i think there's even something to be said about like trying to be better it's not just for the image but i mean even just like the sense of satisfaction and like joy you get from the hobby um i think that there's something like in it you know for everyone regardless of like how private or public you are yeah i agree with
2: that i was gonna i like last time i was at maurice's house i was like I mean, I was just impressed with everything he had there and the the species he had are, of course, really mind-blowing. But uh, I would like to get more into that eventually, but currently I'm just focusing more on school and things because it's a lot of time and effort. (laughs) when You have that many turtles, and I already have, like, I think I have, like, 10 or 12. I don't remember the specific number off the top of my head, but uh, it's already a decent amount to work with, and it's like, yeah, I don't need anymore for a while i'm just gonna get through through school get my like career and all that stuff set up and uh once i have all that stable then i would like to really go into it start really getting into all of it
0: i uh i do i do think that there is a distinction too between conservationist and people that are in it for the commercial value or just the self-interest and well and like Jason said, self-interest sort of varies, and and obviously we're all sort of I think motivated by what we want, um, and but I think that there's a difference ma- mainly between conservationists and people that are doing this for um, I think commercial purposes, or and that the commercial aspect tends to give sort of I think the hobby a bad name, um, just because a lot of people associate oh you keep turtles so you must sell them or you must not really understand them and just kind of mass produce and i think that that's so far from the truth in terms of when you look at the essentially the entire total room uh these are all incredible people i mean when you when you say i think a lot of people are are amazed to hear that i mean you'd go through the process of actually sequencing your animals to understand small scale variations that a lot of uh uh that that is for most people they wouldn't even think twice about and I, I think that that you're certainly uh a a someone that is um, is uh sort of i think a great sort of mo- a model i guess for the the conservationist side of uh of, of turtle and tortoise preservation and uh there's so many other people that do it, but a lot of times they go unnoticed because a lot of the publicity comes from the the groups like PETA and such that target the commercial aspect and and I, I think PETA targets all of that and their their ground is not conservation it's ethics and I think ethics is completely subjective and you can't know what an animal is is uh, thinking or feeling and so it's sort of a mute point. Um, and and Pete is just a lot of people don't realize this, but their shelters for dogs and cats are almost a hundred percent kill rates because they justify the animals better off dead. And uh, even there was a lab that was had two dogs. The person near it was near where I live. Um, I've been there a few times, and I guess a long time ago they had two dogs on site that somebody working in the lab just happened to own, and they had them in a large yard and PETA had this idea that they were experimenting on them when in reality the the, pers- the lab technician just owned them and brought them so they had more space to run around. And two people that were, I guess, uh, spokespeople for or part of the PETA came over, and in the course of the night they burned both of the dogs. Uh, and 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 just I think that's a, that story sticks out in my mind in terms of what they stand for is just sort of this crazy uh, idea that animals are better off dead than, uh, kind of protected by us. And in, in certain situations, there are certain people that I think do need to be kind of held accountable for their actions, but there's a lot of people that they're not doing this because they want money. Uh, and, and they're not mean people They're They really understand more than most people, honestly. So I think it, it like that invisible arc sort of, and that the people carrying the ark are, are, a lot of times in the shadows in terms of the major publicity. So it's, it's great work. Um,
3: Yeah. Unfortunately it's the, it's the bad apples that get most of the publicity. Um, That's always the case. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. especially with like, you know, captive keepers. You know, Anthony, when people hear you have like 200 turtles, the last person you want to be associated with is, is like Jay's reptile view. Or, you know, those. That, you cannot justify conservation with, you know, those these crazy like commercial values that those people pump out now. Um, just, is it really just a sad scene that we're seeing all of these bad people being pushed to publicity while, you know, good people like you, you know, just have to live in the shadows.
0: But with that said, I, I think, uh, thank you. Yeah, there's a lot of people I think that, uh, and that kind of do make get the message across, but it's not going to be as sort of, um, as, as, uh, I guess, universal. There's a certain group that listens, and then there's the more that are kind of want that kind of instant gratification or instant kind of dopamine surge. Oh, so and so all these people are bad. Someone just got busted with fifty thousand turtles that they were exporting illegally. I mean that's just not how that's not what this is. This is it's it's it, it it is science. I mean it's observation. It's 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 the pure form of science. It's uh it's it's no different than anything else, I think. Um I am curious uh and I know that one of the this is a genus that's fascinating to me, and, and just, I guess, the whole the whole family, not just this particular genus, but the Maramies, um, Asian pond turtles. I just think they're so interesting because they're similar, in some sense, to um, Western pond turtles, sort of, in, what the, in things they're related to, uh, and, but also just kind of in habitat and in a lot of respects. And I'm just curious, like... What has your experience been with... You work with a lot of different Maramis, I think, and, and what's your experience with those? I, I think that not a lot of people work with, with them, so...
1: You know, they're such an interesting, interesting. genus. I, I've never I've seen, never or seen like, a group of animals or can imagine a group of animals that simultaneously loved and hated each other, each other so, much. so much. They... Uh, Uh, They will breed uh, with each other uh, across – I mean, they'll hybridize with anything. They'll – like, I have to make sure I don't leave my – my uh, Maremi's around my dogs because we might have some weird turtle dog hybrid like they just love everything and try to mate it and uh, then on top but then beyond that they want to kill each other all the time they have very uh, aggressive and and um, uh, very hateful uh, courtship and mating rituals that just rip each other apart Uh, one of the interesting things is so um, my wife always says that I, I say everything is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There's some animal work, a project we're going to take on or a trip that we're going to take to observe animals somewhere or something. And it's always a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, she tells me every time. So um, I was asked to go to, to, and I've told this story on the podcast before and, and totally devoted, but I'll just I'll tell you guys quick, uh, briefly. I was supposed to, because it leads into the answer to the question. Uh, I was supposed to go to Shanghai to a turtle conference Um, to speak and it was very interesting conference Uh, it was in 2019 and um, she's like oh it's a once in a lifetime opportunity blah 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 everything is and I didn't go all expense paid didn't go and I sent my friend and he did a a talk on box turtles um, North American box turtles which is which is interesting morally as well, because like, I, and I helped him. We create, we did the present, we created the presentation together, and he went there. That's a very big, uh, exciting group of animals over there right now, um, and they're going in there one way or another. So I think morally it makes sense to send him and to do the presentation. Number one, because then he gets to go and see Shanghai and see this conference. But then also because maybe maybe this will help increase the percentage of animals that actually survive that are making it over there. Uh, and not that that necessarily helps conservation as we've already talked about, but maybe preservation anyway, um, to some extent, I don't know. I'm just talking out of my butt, but when he was there, he also, uh, was able to, uh, check out some of the turtle farms and species like, like Reeves turtles are being produced. There's There's 10 million Reeves turtles being produced in China every year. Uh, Moremi's Mutica, the yellow pond turtle, is a turtle that's being produced in in huge numbers. And I think in terms of the most ferocious uh, Moremi species that just wants to rip everything apart, I would think Mutica is probably towards the top of the list, that yellow pond turtle. And what they do there is they basically just throw a thousand of them into this huge pond together. And then there's not uh, as much... Uh, really significant injury inflicted i think because there's so much going on with so many turtles that the aggressive the aggression of, of those few aggressive turtles gets uh evenly distributed throughout the group and then you don't they don't end up picking on specific animals so i think that's a really interesting thing with that too but you know i have marmies hybrids here uh, i have pure meremis i have a, a group of uh, J- japanese reeves turtle which is an interesting one because reeves Turtles uh, were were brought to Japan and and introduced, and you get these huge black Reeves turtles that are so interesting, uh, and that nobody really has. And it's not something that needs to be preserved, but it's just something that like I think turtle nerds are really interested in to have these really unique Reeves turtles that are part of a uh, of, of a locality now, even though it is even though they were introduced like I don't know between four and one thousand four hundred and one thousand years ago
0: anyway and, yeah i mean that certainly summarizes it it's just such a diverse and interesting group um i like you said the the turtle farms are um that's one of those things that is just incredible to see kind of the mass production that occurs there one of my uh one of the memories that sticks out in my mind was At uh, one of the the TSA in 2017 in Charleston, uh, Dick Vogt was the last speaker, um, and he was actually talking about turtles in China, and for the last five minutes of his presentation, the entire place was just laughing out loud. He was just listing off the uh, anecdotal reports of how many of each species China is producing, and, I mean, they were some pretty ungodly numbers. I think he said something like 68 or 350 Raffidus somehow. I, I This was – it, it could have been some sort of joke, but it, he was – like that just gives you an example of – obviously the numbers are going to be skewed, and these are all an, anecdotal reports. But it is ridiculous when you see sort of the quantities. And then as a group too um, – as someone who's interested in sort of genetics and, and that aspect of things, they're so interesting. Like you said, they just breed like crazy and seem to just kind of destroy all lines of uh, kind of what you would expect in terms of where they can hybridize. The uh, A lot of people, I think, are they know that they hybridize but maybe don't know there was sort of a, I guess, paradigm behind this. Uh, Jim Parham, uh, who I know – decently who works near nearby where i live he actually did a lot of so a lot of those those i guess this is just for listeners a lot of the maramis hybrids i think there were at least 12 that were described as full species um based on a lot of captive animals between the 80s and 90s um at this point in time a lot of description species were based on morphology what they look like And uh, you can't really blame people for doing the the best that they can. But uh, Jim Parham in in the early uh, 2000s came through and used some of the first kind of sequencing analyses and determined that there was a large group of mock turtles and that there were all these hybrids. And then that kind of opened up this whole idea that, oh, these are all just coming out of the farms. And, you know, a lot of people took locality data from the exporters and that kind of thing is pretty – uh, I, I would definitely not, certainly I think if there's going to be a weak point of an argument, that's, that's where it, it that's where it lies is and not necessarily distinguish they used before there was really access to genetic data, but just to, to trust someone that was just trying to sell you the animal, I'm not sure, but regardless, it's such an interesting group. And I, uh, I, I mean, have you produced, so you've got every member I, of, well, I guess We don't even know necessarily what what members, Acadia uh, and um, the uh, Acadia and then Chinemis, I guess, are kind of, those are kind of debatable. But have you produced, or you own every one of those or have representatives from every Maramise? Oh, I think you're You're muted.
1: Yep, sorry. I just I pressed mute and <laughs> pressed thought it didn't mute and then it did. So here I am. Okay. Uh I I don't have a lot of the Meremis um, now Be- and not to say I, I work with them and moved on from there certain species I've I've never kept. Laprosa casca caspica um uh, the golden thread sinensis um there's quite a few that i i never have and i think it's more of like an understanding like okay pump, pump the brakes these turtles hate each other and i think creating um an, an enclosure that works well for them is not something that's really easy to do uh so i don't have a lot of them around but but i do keep several and i actually have um several hybrids that, um, uh, like, like uh, Maremi's Iversoni uh, and others that were the actual animals used to write those papers in the 90s to describe them as species. So I actually have those specific animals, uh, which is really cool. And those, obviously, not a preservation project, but just something that I think is really interesting from, like, a being a student of the game perspective, if that makes any sense. Like I, I really, I really am interested in that, uh, history of kind of how some of those species came to be. Uh, and I don't have a lot of success breeding, breeding them. I have produced, um, uh, Quang Tung River Turtles, or Redneck Pond Turtles, uh, whatever common name you want to choose for them, Maremis, Negricans. I uh, have produced them and I produce uh, a couple of um, types of Reeves Turtle. Uh, but beyond that, I, I basically have some hybrids. And, and that's it. So not really that many. I have a lot more, have a lot more different Cora um, Asian box turtle uh, taxa than I do Maremi's at this point. But I'm I'm very much married to a couple of those projects, it, um, including the Japanese reef turtles, which I just love to death. Uh, I also have an, a large group of animensis as well, the, the Vietnamese pond turtle. And the largest one, too, that... Um, that's been recorded. It's funny. The paper says the largest one ever is 285 millimeters, the largest uh, Vietnamese pond turtle. Uh, and that's, and then the credit for that is given to McCord and Iverson. But then when I talked to Bill, he's like, no, that one that you have is the largest in I've ever seen, but she's 245 millimeters. So something interesting there. I don't know if like it was taken over the curve of the shell, but, um, more generally that's not normally how that goes but anyway i geek out over all, geek all the stuff, stuff as you can stuff. tell i'll be I'll quiet, be now. quiet. Same, thing.
0: same thing we yeah we're the same way the uh that's yeah that's pretty cra- and and i think that's a good even the uh red red cheeked or red deck pond turtles is a great example of a species where they're i would say maybe more in captivity and in ter- in, in, there are certain variants like the I guess to quote Peter Proshchak, the dumbhead, the megacephalic ones. There's very few in captivity, but mm-hmm. like the the normal kind of variety, maybe more in captivity than in the wild. I I guess that's a hard thing to say for certain, but the,
2: the megacephaly is one of my favorite aspects of the. I think you can with them. I
1: think you can definitely say with that. Definitely say with them.
2: It's just a. It's just a well, I'm not cutting anybody off, am I? All right. Yeah. I was, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, uh, say the yeah. megacephaly and like the eye and nigricans and you see in a few of them is it's actually pretty crazy. It's, it's, pretty it's pretty similar very similar to uh, like the yeah, megacephalic graptomies, graptomies, graptomies and uh, <laughs> Cernopterus over, over here. here. But I mean, just from my understanding, of, my understanding of megacephaly, it's, it's so it's, so, it's, it's so a, lot so a lot of, of it is so just environmentally induced. It's their diet and, and it probably varies depending on the species, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you can you can see it even with, like, common musk turtles. Like, you can find some in an area that's packed with Asian clams, and they all have really large, like, expanded heads. And then you find them in, like, a urban pond, and they all have really narrow, small heads. With, and the only difference is what they're eating. So that's pretty much what influences it. But it's, it's still one of my favorite things. That's I love that unusual. Morphology. Yeah, I,
1: I have a group... I have a group of um, uh, what would have been uh, Chynemes, people pronounce Chynemes, but it's supposed to be, you know, C-H makes a K sound in Latin, right? So uh, basically the Reeves that were supposed to be Megalocephala, megalocephala, right? So I have a group, but they're captive raised and they don't have, yeah. uh, they don't, they don't display the large heads that are supposed to be, you know, the, the determining factor I for think those the uh, because they're raising captivity.
2: I think it's completely environmental because they see it all over the place in different places and, and there's no correlation to location. It's, it all has to do with what they're eating and uh, that might even influence their body size and everything. Uh, Michael and I saw this on Instagram not long ago. There was this giant Reeves eye. It was like 11.2 inches or something. And, uh, it was really megacephalic too. So it looked almost like a barber's map turtle, just in disguise as a Reeves turtle. Like that's, those that are some of my favorites right there.
1: That thing was crazy. I saw the pictures too.
2: Oh, we were probably talking about the Yeah. Same
0: <laughs> the, um. Megalys yeah, megacephaly is interesting. And from, I, I, in college, I'm thinking about going, hopefully trying to pursue kind of a field and uh, looking at genetics and, and such, at least kind of incorporating that. And I think that, sir, you see kind of evolution of genetics, kind of there was this modern synthesis of information that kind of created these logical steps from sort of nucleotide to gene to protein to kind of phenotype. And now the next kind of step in this in this third sort of third synthesis is going to be how does the environment affect uh, structure and change actually genetic expression over time? And I think megacephaly, honestly in turtles could provide some of the clues to this because it's such a fascinating thing to actually see skull morphology change so drastically. And, and you think about it, it's not, I mean, it's not, you, you could almost imagine the keratin uh, of the beaks could actually kind of be molded to, to hard shelled prey over time, but this is not, I mean, it's a complete restructuring of, of the, the, of the, the cranial anatomy. So it's, it's a really interesting, and I think that that's something that in the future is going to be, yeah, look at that. He's got, all right, So what, what all are right, you holding so. up? The big
2: one is a loggerhead musk turtle and the small one is a common musk, musk turtle and they have about the same body size kind of difficult let me reorient them from the top and they're neither of them are particularly large i mean this loggerhead came from an environment where it was feeding on tons of snails and uh so that's why it's got a just massively enlarged head you can see how wide the plates are and, and then this odoratus is just a typical odoratus probably from it was from a little sandy creek around here so probably wasn't feeding on much things other than insects and detritus and not really anything to stimulate anything that, to stimulate like, that a, like a that, that, muscle that muscle growth
0: one thing i find so interesting about maramis too is uh and this is something i kind of didn't think about and i it's uh this is why i think that they're similar to to emmy's sort of the european pond turtles and, and southwestern pond turtles that it's mm-hmm. so interesting to me that they're separated by 7000 miles and it's uh it's pretty fascinating but uh, it's sort of a similar situation with maramis and we've got three different species that are in the the european area and then you've got uh, the, i guess the number is debatable maybe four to five um in in asia and they're separated by this large swath of land and it's compared to the emmy species you're looking at two two species separated by a larger distance but maramis is it's sort of a similar situation with more species. And I think the consensus on that is now that there were multiple sort of radiations over time. Uh, and and the Spanish pond turtles, which we talked about on with Simone, uh, are kind of like they were the first ones to colonize Europe. And, and then kind of over time, they kept kind of radiating out to what they are now. It's just like that, that aspect in, in terms of their... Evolutionary history is fascinating to me too. It just adds to that kind of dynamic sort of flexibility and all other aspects. It's just such an interesting group when you dive into it. And I'd be uh, interested, to see, be interested
1: to, see to see what the relationships actually are actually be- between, between the different Maremis species, species, species uh, particularly, particularly as it relates to those to outdated genera, that some, genera that some of them used to fit within, fit within. Um, um, you know, Ananemes is another genera one which was basically a species, um, monotypic, monotypic genus that held Anamensis, held the Vietnamese pond turtle, palm and palm then we mentioned Chinemes or um so there's, it would be interesting to see kind of system how system all those how those continue to stay stay separated or like in the future i think i think emmys to act in emmys like like, like, people have a hard time even telling them apart i i keep i'm raising young young ones of of each right now and and like there's there's so 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 many similarities uh I, I can't speak to the, speak to the genetics, as, the much genetics or, for, as much in terms of Maramis, you know, but I just feel like they're not, some of those um, outliers are not quite as closely related. Um, who knows? I guess I'm a, maybe I'm a splitter.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's certainly diverse. Like Marami just more species. You have a lot more kind of extremes in terms of, diversity i think and and that is that does appear to be the case like the chinemis the 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 red cheeks and and chinese uh the the reeves turtles kind of group and then there's a little more divergence to the the uh the japanese pond turtles and then a little bit more to the european species but like yeah like you said Emmy, I I actually acting Emmys is sort of maybe marginally more informative, but I think they should both both calling pond turtles and and European and Western pond turtles Emmys is not something that's it's wrong. So they're they're really close. I agree. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's it's just it's a fascinating group, and so conservation wise and preservation wise, very important. Um, I think well, so we. I mean, we could talk forever. I I didn't even get to like I've got Asian box turtle questions. I've got all that, but I I don't want to keep everyone for I don't want I don't want to keep you for that long. And I I know everyone's kind of got I've got some stuff I've got to do later, but uh oh. I
1: think I'm good. You can have me join you, you, anytime. Me join you anytime. Oh oh, I thought uh, we lost you. Okay,
0: uh, well, uh, before we go. If it works, we play a little game at the end. Yeah. I Ooh. I don't know if anyone's if anyone's crunch for time. Let me know. We're working on a delay here, so it's a little. I bit. just
4: gotta work at one, work so, at uh, so like, as long as, we can like get as long as we can get done and enough time for me to get some food get in the system before I go before work. I go like, go we work like we should be good.
0: Everyone else is good. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Let's, Let's do, it. do it. Let's do it. All yeah. right, so. So uh, I can – well, who wants – you? Want, I can explain the rules or who – does anyone want to do the honors?
2: I think you, you can do, do it, Michael, if you want.
0: All right. I'll do it. So we play a little game at the end here, and Anthony, you're welcome to participate or just watch The Madness. Um, And in the spirit of the the podcast, uh, we do a little turtle trivia. Um, So I'm going to pull up a random name generator, and we put all five of us or four of us, if you want to opt out and just watch, um, we'll put us in the name generator, and we pick the first person that gets picked. They get to come up with five questions in the span of two minutes related to turtles. I mean, it has to be a turtle-related question. Uh, and then we spin it again and we pick someone who has to answer at those five questions. And if we, if the guest decides to participate, then, uh, and, and you get picked to answer or whatever, then it's just cloud if you get it right or whatever. But if one of us gets picked and, 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 and whatever, we have to make three of the five questions. And if we don't, we have to do something that at the other person's request, the next episode. So I don't know if you want to participate, but I can, I'm can. i going to pull up the...
1: Of course I do. Can I participate? Can I participate? Oh, yeah. Yes. I'm not going to get picked now. Well, I'm all yes, excited. I want, I, want to... I want next episode. I want you guys to start off maybe like, and you remember Anthony from last episode? He's the one who... We made – send us a video of him running around his house naked, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I suggested something crazy at that. I was like, this is going to be like some impractical jokers kind of stuff.
1: Right?
2: <laughs> One of us
0: loses and we make him do something embarrassing. Well, in two episodes, we've not – I don't think anyone's lost. So we've all kind of like joked about how hard we're going to go on each other. And I, I mean I think we've had pretty good questions, but nobody's lost. So – Uh, Okay, so I've still got – this thing saves from the last one, so this was all last week. Um, Okay, I'm just going to do random order. I've got my mic sitting on my computer, so I'm kind of – this is going to be a little slow. My typing is faster, I promise. Um, Let's do jack. I guess I don't need to do caps. There's probably no – Okay, so here we go. I'm going to share. Oh, you guys can't see. So let me just share this really quick. I know. As you should. I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are you trying to figure out how to pull up a generator or something?
0: Yeah, sorry. I've got like 40 million windows open right now. I've got a presentation later on pond turtles so it's going to be fun. Uh can everyone see this? Yep. yep. Sweet okay. oh,
2: I can Oh, I see it. It's up. Oh, I see it. It's up.
0: All right. Here we go. Okay, this is going to be the first and well, I'm going to leave this as a as a, a surprise for some people might know, but while we're doing the guessing, we'll have some sound effects. So okay, first person, this is the person that gets to pick the questions. Oh, okay. I can't see it. Who was it? Oh. <laughs> Yours truly. This
3: is not good news for any
0: of Well, okay, yeah. Congratulations. I, I, trust Congratulations. me. No. We're not going to... Okay. That This is the person that's getting questioned. Uh-oh. Oh! <laughs> Who'd you get? I almost got you, so it would have been the reverse the last round, but yeah, Mr. Ken. Sure. You, almost got me. you
2: almost got me.
0: You probably murk me.
2: Probably I, me. I, I wouldn't go I, too crazy I, with I, you last time. But.
0: <laughs> well, no. I, um, okay, so it's me versus Ken, so I guess everyone else is. Uh, by, and I could have come prepared with Jeopardy music, but instead I'll, I'll – we'll, I'm I'm gonna be busy I guess someone's gonna have to I was gonna do the sound effects but now I gotta I gotta come up with questions so if someone wants to put on the Jeopardy music or something um all right let me let me give me like two seconds to set up the timer I'll play fair I'm setting on my two minutes all right Ken you got two minutes to sit there and wait for me to come up with questions I might be able to play the music on my phone if you want me to. I think I, I guess can that cater works. this. I, guess that I think I can Well, uh, Okay, yeah, I'll get going.
3: All right, you got it. All
0: right, All right it. here we go. I'm on my two minutes. All right, five questions.
3: While we were, um, While we were waiting uh, for Michael to, to murder, to murder to me, <laughs> Anthony, I just—you also, um, also—you also work for yeah. VCA Animal Hospital, right? That's—I find that pretty interesting. We haven't—I don't think we discussed that yet. Can you tell us more about yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. So I was a social worker for uh,
1: about a decade, and I kind of lucked into that just because, you know, I mentioned about my family history and stuff like that. I had some. Uh, some struggles growing up with, you know, and and needing to mature early and and be, you know, act like an adult in my family earlier than maybe some other people do. And uh, kind of found myself after college, like, okay, I have a degree. I know I don't want to be an artist. And I fell into that field and ended up being really successful in it until I needed a master's if I wanted to go forward. And I actually ended up losing my job and I'm like, just like, there's no way I don't want to do this anymore. Maybe I can get a job in the animal field that I love so much and uh, put some resumes out there. And I was lucky enough to be able to. And then once I start, I, I was a referral manager. So my job was to be the face of this large 24 hour animal hospital, which was really cool. Cause I really am a people person. i want to get out there and meet people and talk to them about what I'm passionate about. And, uh, I knew seven days in, I took a training and I knew two things after that. I wanted to be a hospital manager, run, run my own hospital. And I wanted to be a trainer like the training I had attended. So now both four years in, both of those things are the case. I'm the hospital manager for a really large animal hospital. It's the type of place that you would bring your dog to get uh, brain surgery like a really big time referral hospital. And then I also do trainings. I just finished one up uh, Thursday and Friday this week. I do 17 hour trainings over two days. And um, it's uh it's a really wonderful thing to be able to to work in that field. And it's one where one of the things we're, we're trying to do in the veterinary space is to reach out to younger people. Because I think a lot of, a lot of people and you guys are all smart. I mean, you guys, you guys are so far and away past where I was at your age. Uh, I, I was I did not grow up knowing that that was a possible career. I thought there were veterinarians and that was it. And I knew I wasn't going to be a doctor. Like it's not even something that I thought about. So um, to work in this field now, I want to kind of change, uh, you know, change that for people so that we can get people um, from different areas too. I mean, right now, basically all there is of people in veterinary medicine are Caucasian, like 80 to 85% are women. There's just not a lot of diversity. And I think that we could grow a lot more if we were getting into, you know, some, some more urban areas and, and uh, continuing to grow the diversity in veterinary medicine. And there's a shortage of technicians, shortage of doctors So we're also working on all of that too, but I'm, I'm writing a book, right? I'm writing two books right now. One on uh, my wife and I with our turtle endeavors, kind of like a turtly devoted type theme. We're writing together about our relationship and how ridiculous it is to be married to somebody like me. And then I'm writing another one on, on kind of my social workers perspective on the veterinary uh, uh, field because it's it's crazy like there's a lot of depression there's a lot of um, there's a lot of people that are burnt out and overworked so it's something I'm really passionate about
3: yeah yeah so yeah that's cool when you when your book ever comes out we will we'll be sure to tell our listeners about it uh, unfortunately right now
0: Michael's time is up so we're gonna see that we're gonna call this one the death of Ken
3: <laughs> oh. Oh. I'm not a total um, specialist by the way killed anyway, so. Kenny. Get
0: that out there. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Ken's dead. (laughs) Um, I drove by. I actually drove by the VCA headquarters in LA. Uh, well, whenever I was like last month, and when I was going up to Turtle Conservancy, just by chance. So, just a random tidbit. I hope I'll be there soon, (laughs) so that I can
1: visit you (laughs) while I'm there.
2: I was just at the Conservancy a couple months ago with Michael. That was fun.
0: Well, and you were there at about the worst time. Uh, I had somebody that – well, second to worst time. December's the worst. But, yeah, no, I mean just let me know. Any of you guys are down here. We're going to look for the two turtles that we can – well, the two native turtles. We can probably find like 25% of global diversity <laughs> if we were to look in some of the ponds. Um, okay, so <laughs> – Get ready, Ken. No, this is not going to be – it's not going to be terrible. I uh, I think this is doable. And there's one question that is catered to you specifically at the end. So. <laughs> I hope I can answer it. I hope I can answer it. Yeah. Okay. Um, you, you'll be able to – I think you'll do this. Okay. So the first question is how many – what is the most frequently cited number of turtle species in Florida? <laughs>
3: <laughs> uh, uh, let's think, let's think.
0: Hmm. how about 14 <laughs> uh, no multiply by two and then add one. <laughs> I, I've seen 29 okay, the most okay. Okay. Right, a little bit off. I mean I, is that is there a consensus on that I just want to fact check myself. I,
4: yeah, I, I wonder if a like I naturalist, I naturalist has some sort of like sort I of yeah. guess I reporting that on like, reporting what like what you see,
2: and then you get some. But there are non natives, and it still varies a bit. But I think twenty nine sounds about right. I don't know if I. I don't think I would have even guessed that off the top of my head. I probably would have said like thirty one or twenty six
1: or something.
0: I'm not asking you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was thinking high twenties.
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. So okay, we're. I think that. High twenty, yeah, high twenties would have been acceptable, but fourteen, not gonna <laughs> cut that. Okay, so uh, the next one, this should be an easier one. This one you'll get, I think. What is a section of the turtle shell called? Like a a, a piece of, um, of keratinous layer of the shell. I'm probably way over. A, a you'll know. Like, are you talking about like a scute or... Yeah, yeah. There you go. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, okay, this one, okay, so what is the, there are two acceptable answers for this, but you're only realistically going to get one. What is the genus name, the most recent genus name of the bog turtle? Hmm. (laughs) Hmm. He's like mastered the art of typing with his his elbows. <laughs> yeah,
3: he's typing on my elbows. Right? <laughs> yeah,
0: he's just like. Yeah, he's just like. Look up on his phone. Look up on his
3: phone. It's. Does it start with an E? Does it start with an E? No. <laughs> I don't
0: know this one. I don't know this one. Okay, I would have accepted either glyptomies or cal- calamies. Ah. But yeah, glyphomies. Okay. So You gotta get these okay. next
4: two right, yeah, in, order to to right in order to so, win. So you know, the pressure's on, yeah, Ken. The pressure's on, Ken.
0: Okay. Uh this might have been a little bit mean. Um <laughs> God damn
3: Oh good. man, I don't know.
0: Yeah. I'm trying okay. I'll give you the last one I was gonna give you first because I feel bad <laughs> now. Uh so what is unique in general about the evolution of turtles? Oh, I mean
3: uh they have very slow um, very slow evolutionary rates in their mitochondrial uh, compared
0: to yeah. that was way more detail than i was looking for you just need to say slow You're, you got it <laughs> um okay uh and then okay i thought i really i thought you were going to get the bog turtle one man <laughs> no. you got to do me like that ken make you look like a okay i can't think of another question to ask you in this uh He's got two
4: right and two wrong, so, right, so you know you better wrong, make so the question, better a make question a good one.
0: Okay, I, 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 okay, here we go. This was a, my original question for sure. Uh, what is the hypothesis behind why uh, some turtles have a transorbital bar? Like, what does that help with in the eye? Oh, okay. Uh, well, oh,
3: okay. well, I know one of them. It could, be, them. It could be polarization sensitivity. You know. Sensitivity. There you go. You got it. <laughs> Uh, just to explain it to our listeners. Oh man, that's three. Oh, man, that's
0: three. Uh, okay, he's getting okay. Yeah, you you got it because you're gonna explain. It yeah, yeah, goes explain, explain to explain. our listeners
3: what that means. Um, you know, when you go fishing, you'll notice that it could be very hard to see fish in the water. So you wear uh, polarizing sunglasses, and that it kind of aligns the sun rays in ways that you know your your eyes can perceive the. Shapes in the water easier, so it has also been suggested that these transorbital bars, they're basically like vertical bars in the turtle's eyes. They could uh, aid in doing pretty much the same thing that sunglasses do: realigns the you know the rays of the sun so that they could help hunt in the water. There we go.
0: And and also find water too. Yeah, uh, Just to, yeah, they. Uh, it's like one one of the biggest mysteries is you can release sliders at in areas where they can't in spotted turtles and other well yeah sliders and mud and musk turtles you can release them in areas where they don't have a a vantage point to see water and they can find it so and and like the most direct path like obviously if they just kind of went in a random direction you'll probably find it at some point but the most direct path it's non-random orientation so it's pretty interesting but yeah it's certainly uh, okay so you got three out of five that's close that's close (laughs) Yeah. You got, you clutched up. Wait, we got to do, now I got to. Oh no, I'm doing it again. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Good job, Ken. Well, okay. I think, uh, that was, uh, I certainly went through a period of like waking up there and now I'm awake and I think that, like, that happened with, with maybe – well, just me because <laughs> I'm working on a different time zone here. But, uh, I mean, that was a great – I think that was an amazing episode uh, in terms of, like, the depth of knowledge and just the range of topics. I, uh, I I think I speak for everyone here. We could literally talk to you for a full day, Anthony, uh, probably longer. So that was – it's just thank you so much for coming on. Uh, for us kind of starting this thing up to have someone like you on here uh, to talk to us and, and uh, represent um, what it means to kind of be a really cool uh, turtle person who's making an awesome impact, it's, it's, really, an, uh, it's really an honor f- uh, for, for all of us. So thank you uh, so much for coming on and talking to us, and uh, we'd love to have you back at some point, too.
1: I appreciate you guys so much what you're doing. I can't thank you enough for for having me be a part of it and thinking of me. I am just blown away by all of you. Your knowledge, your professionalism, you are just everything. You you give me, you inspire me to to continue to do what I do so that like I can continue to be seen as being in with people like you, if that makes any sense, right? Like we talk about the private sector and kind of the shortcomings of, of different animal people and stuff like that. Like you guys are it. I just, it it warms my heart to know that you exist. I want you to know that you have a listener forever to this. As long as you do it, I will be listening and, and sharing and telling other people that they should be doing the same. And if I can ever do anything for you, you want me to come back on awesome. You have questions or you feel like you want to teach someone something i'd be happy to learn from you too because i have learned from you guys today and uh continue to so thank you for being you don't ever change and just keep going and i can tell you from my from experience i always felt this that as long i don't know where i was going to end up but as long as i just kept doing something every day to improve my situation and to continue to to like pursue what I was interested in that I would be successful. And I feel if younger me could look at me now, I would be so proud and excited. Uh, but at the same time, there's still so much more to accomplish and stuff like that. So just keep doing the, the right thing. You guys are incredible.
4: Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's definitely like a pleasure to meet you, having watched the podcast, well, the podcast like all these years. Uh, yeah, thanks for taking the time out of what I'm sure is like a pretty busy schedule.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
4: It was
2: awesome. It was great to talk to you. Do you live in like
1: Connecticut? Is that what you said? Yep. Yep. The constitution state. Yeah. You have to come visit sometime. You're always welcome. If you guys ever find yourself in like the New York area, I'm like a little over an hour from the city. So just invite yourself if you're ever in the New York area, please. And I'd love, I hope that I see you guys at a conference or something as well, but yeah, invite yourself whenever you're coming. Okay.
2: Connecticut's not me and uh from me, so I should probably make that at some point.
0: Jack Jack and I were supposed to be down there like t- ten days from now, but that didn't happen. So but yeah, at some point we're certainly gonna get up and, and see all that. But yeah, thank you so much. It's uh been a, a pleasure and an honor. Do you I appreciate it, buddy?